This is They Create Worlds, episode 149, Gottlieb, part one. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We welcome you once again to the wonderful land of They Create Worlds, where we have some administrative tasks to bestow upon you, the listener, before we delve deep into the wonderful lands of Gottlieb. But before that, Jeffrey, do I sound like I'm on old-time radio? You certainly sound better. And if you listen to our previous episode, things may have sounded a bit louder, but a bit off. <laughs> a wee bit off. My apologies for that. However, this should be rectified in this episode. And for that, we would like to thank our wonderful patrons. That's right. To improve the audio quality, which uh, we're always trying to do around here, we pride ourselves on that. Jeffrey uh, went spending with some of the funds from our uh, wonderful patrons that support us uh, every episode and came away with a couple of delightful new toys that he is anxious to tell you all about. Original problem that I discovered, and this is what's in the previous episode, is that our level, and this gets into a little bit of audio technical, the amount of loudness you hear was not being consistent, where I would be louder than Alex, or Alex would be louder than me, or some variation thereof. The problem then was, okay, I have to balance the two of us. And then I figured out, oh, I can use this little tool and this plug-in here, and I can get our sounds balanced. Fantastic. Let's use this other tool I have to put the output volume to the industry standard. Then let's throw it out there. Lo and behold, by doing that, Alex would be quiet, then loud, then quiet, then loud, and I would be a little all over the place myself. No, that doesn't sound good. So it was sad. <laughs> and some people pointed that out to me. We rectified it. We actually have a special preamp that goes between our microphones into our equipment that records that lifts up the volume of our voices to an appropriate level and then really removes a lot of the noise floor that the mics already remove a lot of. But instead of the mics have their gain or how much they're sensitive to being jacked way, way up, it's way, way better this way. Hopefully everything sounds a lot better. Absolutely. As we said, we thank the support of our uh, patrons for making this possible because we do have a Patreon that we uh, bring up from time to time. As we always say when we bring it up on the show, this podcast started free, this podcast remains free, this podcast will always be free. We do put in a lot of work behind the scenes, uh, Jeffrey on the audio setup and on the editing, me on the uh, in-depth research that I'm doing into video game history, and we also have, of course, the normal costs that always come with podcasting, hosting, and domains, and all of that fun stuff. 
While we will always be free, we do have expenses. And if you like what we're doing, we do appreciate when you help chip in. It helps us do things like make the podcast sound better. It helps us get hosted all over the internet. And if we ever get really, really gobs of money, it'll help even fund additional research trips and allow for even deeper dives into video game history than we already do. Certainly, if you don't have the money to send our way, we understand. We certainly can relate. Everyone's hurting for money and crunch times for this, that, and the other thing. You got to take care of yourself first. All we ask, if you do like what you hear from us, you don't have to send us money. But hey, if you want to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, somewhere else, wherever you're listening to us, feel free to drop a review and say, hey, I like these guys who blither on about video games for hours on end. They're kind of cool. Absolutely. We're also active in other areas of social media. We have a Twitter account that we actually update semi-regularly, doing lookbacks primarily on Thursday, Throwback Thursday stuff, to milestone events in video game history, uh, looking back by decade, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years ago. Occasionally a month is so boring we don't bother, but for the most part, we're consistently putting those out every week. Even just retweeting or liking our tweets is another way that uh, you can also show your appreciation and help us get more of a profile out there. We've been doing this for, good Lord, is it six years now? Is that about right? We started in 2015 in September. Just over six years. We've done two episodes a month like clockwork. We've never missed. Came close once. We don't talk about it. We've never missed in all of that time. We're providing some of the most in-depth historical examinations of uh, video game history out there. Certainly, we're a bit niche for that reason. That's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, that deep dive. But we've been slowly growing. We have gotten more successful over time. And we can't do it without you, the listener, and anything you can do to help us out in this way. We don't like shilling very often because we're here for the love of the game, not the fame. But, you know. It's okay to sometimes shill for ourselves, so you can get out there and Patreon or review us or like our tweets. All sorts of ways you can be a part. You might even get stickers if we like you enough. We like you a lot. (laughs) I like you so much. I will mail you stickers anywhere in the world. Yes, I do mean you. I don't care. I have mailed them to Japan. I have mailed them to New Zealand. I have mailed them to Australia. I have mailed them to England. I have mailed them to Canada, Mexico. I don't care. Give me an address. I will mail you some stickers. You can do that in any way you wish. Preferably email me at jeffrey at theycreateworlds.com. You can message us through any of our social media, Twitter, Patreon. Heck, message me on Discord. Some of you have done that. And I will (laughs) send you stickers. Wonderful, wonderful stickers. Very well done stickers of the uh, They Create Worlds logo. Yeah, I suppose we've probably bored people enough with ourselves. Let's get into the thing that people are really here for, which is pinball machines, right? We're the Pinball History Podcast, aren't we? Certainly when it comes to video game pinball, because I really like me some rollerball. We're going to have to go back way, way back before that to, I believe you said, the 1930s. Even uh, slightly further back than that, even to the tail end of the 1920s for one of the oldest companies, though not the oldest, that was involved in the video game industry. They are no longer with us. I'm referring to D. Gottlieb & Company, one of the great pioneers in pinball, the 
leading company in pinball literally for decades. Near the tail end of its life, finally couldn't ignore that video game thing that was creeping into the shopping mall arcades and dabbled there as well. This episode isn't going to have any of that video game stuff. This is one of our rare episodes where we don't discuss video games at all because Gottlieb has a long history. While we're not going to get super duper in-depth on Decades of Pinball because it's not where our expertise is, just like we did with Bally a while back to dive into some of these old-school coin-op companies that ended up becoming video game companies, at least in part because in the late 70s, early 80s, after Space Invaders, they really had no other choice if they wanted to keep making coin-operated games. It is kind of impressive how a company managed to survive from the roaring 20s all the way up to near the modern times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think it's a testament to the both business acumen and uh, manufacturing acumen of its founder, who is David Gottlieb, the D in D. Gottlieb and Company. To start this look, we have to start looking a little bit at the man uh, himself. David Gottlieb was the son of immigrants, Lithuanian Jews, who immigrated to the United States to the city of Milwaukee in the Midwest. He was born in 1900. His father was a tailor, very uh, traditional business that Jewish immigrants were involved in in the United States. He was a natural salesman. He was a guy that was interested in selling things. He was one of five brothers. He served in World War I, as did many of his other brothers. He attended university for a brief period of time in Minnesota, but as far as I know, he did not graduate. He worked in his father's garment business for a time, but really wanted to be a salesman and strike out on his own. So in the early 20s, he ended up relocating to Texas, headquartered, I think, in the Dallas area, but traveling all across the oil fields of West Texas as a salesman. He was primarily peddling slot machines, which were becoming very popular in this period of time. The 1920s was kind of a growth period for the coin-op industry. It was period of time when the United States was motorizing, when automobiles were becoming more common. Roads, good roads, as opposed to just dirt trails, were starting to be constructed across the United States, and it was starting to become easier to get big, bulky goods to small towns. The coin-operated industry in its early period, in the 1890s, the 19-aughts, the 19-teens, was pretty much a big city trade. And then you'd maybe have a few machines here and there at maybe the local hotel or some other big local establishment that could in a rail hub, because you were basically talking about machines that you could ship in by rail and then you couldn't really get very far after that. These big cast iron slot machines weren't exactly the ideal thing to be transporting by horse and carriage or by wagon. Before the 20s, it was kind of clustered in the big cities or in major rail hubs. In the 20s, that was changing because the automobile was coming and roads were coming and the industry was expanding, the country was expanding. Dave Gottlieb in the beginning was more riding the rails than the automobiles, but we'll get to the automobiles, and selling slot machines. He was kind of, I think, jobbing them as well. And so he was often running around West Texas with suitcases full of silver dollars from machines, 
he traveled with a pair of Smith & Wesson pistols, and he would barricade himself in his hotel room at night because he was loaded down with silver dollars in the middle of nowhere. That was kind of scary. <laughs> Not just that, but that kind of period is a lot more, especially in rural areas, you don't really have really good law enforcement. You had to literally protect yourself with your own thing, and there's a reason we called it the Wild West. It's because pretty much might made right, for better or worse. <laughs> right. And while this is certainly after the traditional Wild West period, uh, you know, the oil fields of Texas were still pretty rough and tumble. These were pretty isolated areas, and you had a lot of laborers that were involved in this business, and so it was a pretty wild thing. So he did that for a while in the 20s. That got kind of old, sleeping with a pistol under his pillow. So he actually changed gears, and he acquired a Model T. I don't have great details. I mean, I'm sure he bought it, but I don't know the story behind that. He acquired a Model T automobile, and he and one of his brothers carted a film projector around rural Texas. This is a period when movies, Nickelodeon cinema, has, has very much become a thing. Movies are very popular. Uh, by the end of the 20s, you'd have the Academy Awards and all of that kind of stuff. We're mostly talking silent films here still, but a lot of towns couldn't have movie theaters. That's not the kind of establishment that could be supported by small rural communities in places like Texas oil fields. He got himself a Model T. He got himself a film projector. He and his brother would drive from town to town with this film projector and show movies in Texas. According to his son, Alvin Gottlieb, who's also since passed away, but who gave a lot of interviews kind of in the 70s, 80s, was really active in that period and beyond into the 90s, says that he had a surefire way to attract an audience. No matter what movie he was showing, at the very end of the movie, he would insert a clip of the Star Spangled Banner, you know, flags flying and all of that and, and the Star Spangled Banner. I'm just relaying the stories that Alvin's telling. Presumably there was actually somebody playing the Star Spangled Banner because he would have been doing this before talkies. But, you know, I think he just had film footage of flags waving and other patriotic things, and then the Star Spangled Banner would be played over the top of that. I don't know if he had a separate record to do that. Probably did. I don't know the details. But the important thing is he would do this at the end, and these people were patriotic, even though this was before the... Star Spangled Banner was the national anthem. It was still a very well-known patriotic song, kind of World War I was when it started taking root as this very patriotic American song, I think. The audience would cheer the Star Spangled Banner at the end. Because he placed that at the end, people outside would hear all of these cheers right before the movie house emptied, right before whatever building he was showing the movie in emptied. Everyone that didn't go to the movie would assume that the movie was a big hit, because they heard all this cheering at the end. And so then they'd want to come too and see the movie, when in fact they were just cheering the national anthem. That story could be apocryphal. Obviously, it's something passed along from David to his own son, and then from his son to enthusiasts and historians. But even if it's apocryphal, it's a nice story, and it kind of gives a sense of the kind of salesman that David Gottlieb was and kind of the knack he had for getting people interested <laughs> in what he had to sell. So you can certainly see how an enterprising salesperson can use the very pro-America sentiment that's going on, especially only a few years after World War I has come to an end. You have a lot of veterans who've come home. You have a lot of the horrors of war really big in everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. You have Europe rebuilding. You have America expanding and building off of that fervor of 
America can do everything. Yeah. We got all this industrial and technology. We're putting down these roads. We're civilizing our country. That's the Roaring Twenties. doing this, that, and the other thing. The Rural Electrification Act is not too far around the corner. We are really doing well and riding high. And so a guy coming around and showing movies and then stirring up patriotic fervor is certainly a great way to sell his product and to get eyeballs and people talking about things. You don't have the internet back then. You don't have a lot of ways for people to communicate. You have primarily word of mouth, some newspapers, and to be honest, a lot of people can't read. So you actually had people who ran around town to town and would read newspapers. (laughs) It's quite amazing. Yep. So uh, David Gottlieb was kind of in all of this. And and then on the side, he was still involved in not the coin-op trade, really, but in kind of the sister gambling trades that were also coming out of, of Chicago and a lot of the same companies. Since slot machines and trade stimulators were kind of games of chance, these companies would also deal in non-coin-operated games of chance. One of those was something called a punch board. A punch board was as its name suggests, is this board, kind of a paper board, where you can punch out these individual kind of openings in the board and there would be various little prizes in there. And so you'd pay for the chance to get a prize, almost like an advent calendar, like uh, you might have done as a kid, except for gambling. It wasn't for Christmas. You know, similar idea in terms of these boards. And so he was peddling those around the state as well and making money on that. He's kind of doing the mail-order slot machine thing. You know, he's not collecting the the silver dollars himself anymore, but he's still selling slot machines by mail-order. He's selling punch boards by mail-order. He's doing the movie business. But I think—I'm not positive about this, but I think actually the mail-order gambling machine business was probably even more lucrative. It's kind of like the movies were the thing that got him in the town and got people interested in him. And then once he had their attention, you know, he could sell in the machines and whatnot because— Once Texas started really clamping down in the late 1920s on gambling devices in the state, he decided that he was going to need a change of occupation. (laughs) Texas was really no longer welcoming in the same way to the kind of thing he'd been doing before. At this point, another individual enters our story by the name of Al Walzer. Al Walzer was a childhood friend and someone he also went to college with at the University of Minnesota when he was there briefly. They'd kept in touch. Turns out that Al Walzer had entered the coin-operated amusement and gambling business with a machine called Hootman Golf. The story that he always told, and I'm sure a lot of these early stories are apocryphal, but because historians weren't really doing what people like me do now and uh, actually trying to talk to some of these people while this was all still new and they were all still alive, a lot of what we have is just apocryphal stories passed down through the generations afterwards. The story goes that Al Walzer was sitting in the lobby of the Radisson Hotel in Minneapolis and was watching all the guests pacing back and forth across the lobby, you know, walking to and fro, and could hear the jingling of the silver coins in their pockets, and thought to himself, I bet I can find a way to get those coins out of their pockets. So he created this machine, Hootmon Golf, put it in the hotel, and started reaping in the profits, and uh, became a minor player in the coin-op business. He wasn't a major one. 
while David Gottlieb was trying to figure out what he should do next, he ended up with the rights to a grip tester, which is a strength testing machine. We've talked about this probably in one of our coin-op episodes. There used to be various kind of testing machines that measured how strong you were or how strongly you could breathe, breath testers, or electric shock machines that challenged you to take a big shock. These kind of machines were in bars and taverns and other places just as a way of providing a little extra custom. You and your friends make a bet and, you know, of who's the strongest. You know, you have a few beers and then you're like, ah, I'm stronger than you. No, you're not. Ah, let's prove it. And so you go to the grip tester or the strength tester and you put a coin in and, and then you see who's stronger. And the loser, I mean, buys the winner a drink or something. So he got the rights to a grip testing machine and was not having any success down in Texas trying to get this thing started. And then so his friend Al Walzer is like, well, you should come up here. Walzer just recently moved to Chicago, and he said to his friend David, no, you should come up here and do this thing, because Chicago is a major industrial city, and it's, it's a city with a lot of tool and die makers. So it's part of the reason why there were so many coin-operated businesses there. It was the perfect place to get into that business, because in this period of innovation, coin-op machines were changing constantly. The technology was changing constantly. It was becoming more sophisticated. Because you had so many tool and die makers in Chicago, as the technology and the machines changed, it was relatively simple to find somebody who could make parts for you or even assemble whole machines for you, if that's how you wanted to go, that already had the expertise and was already kind of keeping up with this, if that makes sense. It does make sense. You have a lot of people there who have all this expertise can know how to do all of this stuff in order to produce things that are needed in industry, needed for the war effort, let's be honest. You have a concentration of that knowledge, so if you want to make things that are designed around entertainment, having the skilled craftsmen who can go, yeah, I need to get this bearing and these gears really small so that it can be shipped overseas for this war effort. Well, I don't need to do that for a war effort anymore. Let's do this for a electromechanical game of some sort, something that has a random chance of winning. Oh, I just knock out a tooth out of this gear, and that's the one that makes you win. Right. So Al Walzer actually loans, because he's very successful now, loans uh, David some money to help him get set up in Chicago in 1927 to do this grip tester of his. And that is the beginning of D. Gottlieb and Company which is established in 1927 in a tiny little building. Gottlieb ends up going to uh, an individual by the name of Charles Chiswer, who already specialized in doing contract work for coin-operated attractions companies, basically coin-operated manufacturers or designers, I suppose I should say. Someone would come to him and say, hey, I've got this prototype of a game, and I think it'll really be big, and I'd like you to manufacture it for me. And Chiswer would do that. That was kind of his business. So they start making this grip tester with Chiswar's company making it, and then D. Gottlieb and company selling it. It was pretty darn successful. They started by making 100, and then those sold. So they made another 100, and those sold. And then they started doing them in batches of 200 and batches of 300. 
This was a really, really successful business, primarily because Gottlieb was a good salesman and he created a distribution network across the entire country very early. He had connections kind of everywhere. Connections in Chicago because Walzer was there and kind of helped him pave the way there. He had connections in Minneapolis from his school days, in Dallas, of course, because he was all through the oil fields. He made some contacts in San Francisco. He built a distribution network of independent distributors. You know, this wasn't company owned that would be with him for decades. One of the people that he got right away in San Francisco was a guy named Lou Wolker. I think we mentioned him before because Lou Wolker was still active in the early 1970s. He was one of the main distributors that helped make Pong a success for Atari because he was really high on the product and he started talking it up with everybody and also snuck a unit out to Allied Leisure in Florida so they could manufacture tens of thousands of clones. <laughs> you know, it was a big booster. And uh, he actually was a Gottlieb distributor going all the way back to the beginning of the company, back in the 20s. Then lived to be one of the major proponents of Pong, though he died actually shortly after Pong entered national distribution. <laughs> That's kind of how Gottlieb managed to do this. He was a, a savvy guy and built up this network of contacts that uh, remained loyal to uh, his enterprise for decades. And so he had a national reach at a time when a national reach was still kind of rare. You know, this business is going great. He started, like I said, in a little small sales office on Wells Street in Chicago. Then pretty soon, he relocated to an even bigger kind of industrial loft space. Then after Chisawar decided that the grip machines were doing so well that he would modify Gottlieb's design a little bit and cut out Gottlieb and start selling it on his own in 1929, Gottlieb moved into his first manufacturing operation at this uh, new industrial loft on Jefferson Street and uh, started making his own machines for the first time, starting with the Husky grip gauge, which was, you know, another kind of iteration of this grip testing machine he'd been doing. And then very soon afterwards added a countertop gun game called Majestic Moving Target because countertop target shooting games were really starting to come into vogue at the end of the 1920s. We talked about those a bit in our arcade episodes where we talked about how people would just put a coin in that would actually be the thing that was shot. Yes, oftentimes. It was pretty much just a lamp and the coin's on its edge. Aim for your goal or whatever. Mm -hmm. Let it go and hope you win. Yep, some of them used coins. Some of them did use actually little metal pellets. Both types were around. Yeah, they were kind of a response to the backlash against pure games of chance that had been happening in the 20s, the same thing that had caught Gottlieb out in Texas. You started seeing countertop games of skill replacing pure chance trade stimulators because then they could say, no, 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 this isn't a gambling device. See, shooting, you're shooting, that takes a skill. So you're winning a prize for doing something well. You're not winning a prize for random chance. That's kind of why these countertop games were becoming big. So, you know, he went from the grip tester to a counter gun game. Both of those products did so well that in 1930, he moved into a big 5,000 square foot production space on West Chicago Avenue to go into even bigger production of everything. Then the Depression happened. The Depression. You have the Roaring Twenties, then you have the Great Market Crash. 
of the United States. It's sort of like the great video game crash, but worse. (laughs) Yes, and unlike the great video game crash, directly led to a global world war soon afterwards. But we won't talk about that. Well, actually, we will, but not yet. He's moving into his new factory space right when the Depression is starting to take hold. So that was kind of poor timing. There are worse businesses to be in than the coin-op trade at the start of the Depression, and we've talked about this as well. Because coin-operated games of chance and coin-operated amusements both are relatively cheap forms of entertainment, it turns out that the coin-operated amusement industry will be very resilient and very successful during the Great Depression. But there was a period of adjustment because a lot of coin-op stuff in the late 20s and the very beginning of the 1930s, like 1930, 1931, was bigger and more expensive because it was a period of plenty. So the machines of the time reflected that. They were in grand, highly decorated cabinets and they had lots of big moving pieces and they would cost a whole nickel at the time for a play, which was actually worth something back then. There was a period of transition here where the coin-op industry was kind of on uncertain footing for a moment. Gottlieb had some success. He made a deal with the P.O. Manufacturing Company of Rochester, New York, to produce one of their games. P.O. had created a very popular countertop device called the Whirlwind, and so his company was doing pretty well, and so that was kind of a prestige pickup. But by 1931, he was making absolutely anything that he could. He was contracting out his factory and making anything that companies would let him make. He was even pressing ashtrays in his factory, not because he had any interest in ashtrays, but because (laughs) he had to keep the lights on and he had to keep the factory running in this period of depression. It was during this period that he had the great fortune to connect with two entrepreneurs named Nathan Robin and Al Rest. Robin and Rest were two of the earliest people to get involved with pinball. Now, this is not a history of pinball episode, so we're not going to go through that entire thing about how pinball developed and its antecedents and bagatelle and and all of that. We're actually going to skip that. But suffice it to say that at the very end of the 1920s, There was a new movement towards what we would now call pinball machines. They didn't quite call them that yet. Games in which you had a plunger and little marbles or metal balls. You would use the plunger to launch those balls onto a glass-enclosed play field, sometimes a countertop model in a wooden countertop unit, sometimes a floor model that had wooden legs coming off of that unit. This playfield would be slightly slanted, and there would be pins, and there would be holes. When you launched your ball, it would move through the pins and get deflected towards holes, and those holes would each have a point value. You would score points for getting the balls in the hole. It really bears no relation to what we call pinball today, with its sights and sounds and bumpers and targets and flippers and everything else, but it was the original pinball. It had just started gaining some traction, particularly in Chicago, particularly in the Midwest, right before the Depression hit. The Depression created some difficulties for the reasons that I already talked about, where these cabinets were kind of elaborate and fancy. They would usually cost about $100, which, you know, back then was a whole lot of money. It was no longer a 
practical product for the realities of the depression world. So a series of entrepreneurs, including our good friend Charlie Chiswar, who we already talked about, started trying to create the same kind of tables, pin tables, but much cheaper, something that you could sell for around $16 instead of for $100, something that you could then recoup your investment by charging a penny per play instead of a nickel per play, something that would work better for a Depression-era audience. Chizawar had gotten involved in this because somebody had come to him with an idea because he was still doing his contract manufacturing thing. And then that guy, he never heard from the guy again. So he decided to put it in production himself. And so he did a pin game. It wasn't the first, not even the first of this wave. But then Nate Robbins saw Chiswar's game, and he decided he would do something similar as well. These were two of the first entrepreneurs that kind of rejiggered pinball to be a cheaper product for the Depression. But the problem was neither of them could do it very well. Chizawar was a good component manufacturer. That's kind of where his strength was. But he had never created like a complete product in a box like this before where you have to do woodworking and cabinet making and the glass enclosure and all of this stuff. I mean, he'd done the grip tester for Gottlieb, but grip testers don't have all of that woodworking stuff. It's, it's a completely different kind of manufacturing. So his machines were shoddy. I mean, to get them down that low in price, he had to basically put out a crummy product. Robin and Rest tried to do the same thing with a machine called Bingo, because Bingo was becoming very popular at the time. That's why they used that name for the machine. They were having the same kinds of problems. Robin went to see Gottlieb, whose factory was gaining something of a reputation as putting out a high-quality product and said to Gottlieb, we've got this game. These games are really popular, but we just can't get the manufacturing right. Will you help us redesign this game and manufacture this game? Gottlieb, seeing an opportunity, especially since, as I said, he was desperate, even making ashtrays to keep the lights on, said, absolutely, I'll do this on one condition. I am your exclusive manufacturer. There are no sales of this game except through me. So they said, sure, because they needed the redesign. They'd have agreed to anything, I think, (laughs) because they needed the redesign. Both parties were sort of desperate for their own individual reasons, and so it was a match made in heaven. Exactly. Gottlieb did a couple of things. These are the things that would really be the hallmarks of the company throughout the next several decades. I mean, the products change, but the kind of basic idea of it stays the same. First of all, he redesigns everything to be more reliable. He redoes the components. He gets a beautiful walnut cabinet for it, something that he's still able to do without raising the cost enormously, but it's still more expensive than most of the cabinets, and it had a more durable and high-quality feel. Even though he could still do the machine for $16, and even though, yes, Walnut was more expensive than what other people have been using to that point, it still felt more expensive than it was. By putting it in that Walnut cabinet, it felt like a bargain at $16 instead of, oh, it's $16 because it's a shoddy piece of crap, right? You still have to have a certain level of prestige to it. You couldn't have the same level of prestige you had in the 1920s. But you can still put those little touches 
that wheelies tell the person who's buying the cabinet and the person who's using the cabinet that, hey, if I'm putting my money into this, it's at least going to work the way I expect it to. Exactly. He did a beautifully painted play field. When we think of pinball today, I mean, colorful play fields is always a part of it. I mean, that's just innate to pinball. The early machines were not thinking aesthetically like that. They were games of chance. I mean, the thrill of it is that you got to launch the little ball with the plunger and then watch it go into the holes. Nobody was really thinking of an aesthetic presentation. That's another thing that Gottlieb did with his redesign that was not being done by the original product and had not been done by Chisowar. Again, this is something that was relatively cheap to do, just putting a little paint on it. We're not talking something elaborate. But putting a little paint on there and and making it look nice is another thing that made it feel more expensive than it necessarily was. Arrows, lines, borders, things like that. Exactly. By redesigning the product for better durability and by redesigning the product to just look better, he created something that felt like a value for 16-ish dollars and felt like something that was worth buying at that price instead of something that you were worried was going to fall apart after the first couple of uses, which, quite frankly, the machines from Chiswer and people like that before that were kind of doing that, falling apart very quickly. He very, very quickly had a massive hit on his hand and was getting backordered like crazy because this was a period, of course, like we said, when the Depression is taking hold, places are desperate to get customers in to spend money. They're willing to try anything to get people in. So a lot of stores, a lot of shop fronts, newsstands, drugstores, that kind of place are interested in these kind of machines when they wouldn't necessarily have been before. It's not just, I almost said bars, but of course this is during Prohibition, so there technically weren't any, <laughs> except under the table, you know, illegal speakeasies. But it wasn't just traditional coin-op venues that were interested in having these kind of machines in them. Everyone was interested in having something that might draw a person in to spend some coins because they were desperate for the cash. He had a product that was relatively cheap and relatively high quality, and so it was very successful. It was so so successful that his little shop that was just struggling to get by making ashtrays months before now couldn't keep up with demand. He actually turned to another small-time company, Keenian Sons, which was primarily a distributor of games, kind of a regional distributor in the Midwest, but was also kind of interested in getting more involved in the manufacturing business. He went to Keenian Sons and said, can you guys take up some of the slack on making this game? And they said, sure. By September 1931, both Gottlieb and Keeney are creating this bingo game that Gottlieb has the exclusive manufacturing rights to. Or so he thought, because once the game became this popular... Once it was on back order and everyone wanted one and the money was rolling in, Robin and Rest decided that they didn't want to do exclusive anymore because they could see Gottlieb was struggling to keep up with demand. They knew they could sell more than Gottlieb could make. So they just threw that whole thing aside and went to another tool and die manufacturer named Leo Berman and had him start building bingo machines for them as well. Bingo machines based on Gottlieb's redesign, which they were also going to patent. They were laying the groundwork for really screwing over Gottlieb. Yeah, they were going to squeeze him out. 
Gottlieb's incensed because not only are they going back on their deal, but they're going back on their deal while using his redesign to do it. I mean, it's their machine, so in that sense, they have the rights to it. But it's extra ugly for Gottlieb that they're taking his redesign of their machine and they're going to squeeze him out by going to a larger manufacturer in Leo Berman. He decides he's got to get even. Nobody at this point is necessarily sure that pinball is going to be a thing that sticks around. Even at this early date, the coin-op industry has gone through fads. Most games are super popular for a year or two or three years. Everyone makes them, and then everyone moves on to something else. We've talked about that in the context of Pong, and we've talked about that in the concept of other video games. We've even talked about that in the context of pinball in later decades. But this was even true in the early 1930s. This was already what the business was. Gottlieb, at this point, didn't necessarily realize that pinball was going to be the defining product of his entire life and career. At this point, he just wanted to get even with Robin and Rest and their partner Berman, who were screwing him over on this bingo thing. And that really just speaks to the lack of character that they had towards Gottlieb. I'm looking at a few of these images of the bingo cabinet now. It is beautiful. There's been some a little bit of restorer imaging to it. You said walnut. It's a nice, dark walnut. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. You have a green play field that is well-painted, looks nice. You got your holes there. It says bingo and stylized letters across the top. If I'm seeing this for the first time on a bar countertop or something, that's going to draw my attention because... This is something that not many people have seen before. It's a novelty, especially when you are just a farmer, a factory worker who doesn't see a lot of novelty anymore. Mm -hmm. A person who hasn't seen a lot of novelty in your day-to-day life. So having this when you're relaxing at the end of the day is kind of like a drink with my friends, throw a couple of pennies into this, and have a little bit of fun just to have fun. Right. He didn't necessarily know that this was the thing that was going to take off, like I said, and be the defining product, but he just knew that he couldn't let those guys, Robin and Rest and Berman, get away with this. Basically, as an act of revenge, he designs his own redesign of his redesign and creates a modified version of Bingo that's very similar, but with subtle differences, in conjunction with his friend and manufacturing partner, Keeney. Together, they put together a game called Baffle Ball. If you look at Baffle Ball, which, uh, of course, we'll put some of this stuff in the show notes. If you look at Baffle Ball and you look at Bingo, they are very similar looking machines, and that's not an accident. Once again, Gottlieb is relying on his superior craftsmanship ability and his superior distribution and salesmanship and advertising capability, and is planning on just really sticking it to bingo before they can really get it going. Both Keeney and Gottlieb begin manufacturing Baffle Ball and selling Baffle Ball in November of 1931. Yeah, it is very similar to Mm -hmm. bingo, and it is more sophisticated. I can even see some similarities to how the design is that has carried on over into modern pinball. Specifically, in the bottom left and bottom right, there are little cards or stamp things explaining the game, what you get for your token, where you actually score and stuff. 
and how the game actually plays is actually explained on a little card. That's pretty common for just about every pinball that's modern anyway. Mm -hmm. Here we have that nice same diamond layout again. Instead of just being some generic holes with pins, it's just a much more interesting looking game that I would go and you're like, oh, bingo. Yeah, there's just four holes and maybe I win. Ooh, baffle ball. I have bumpers and different ways the ball can go in. Nicer. Ooh, I get instructions this time. That's helpful. <laughs> yep, and, and still only for $16. The main thing here is that Gottlieb knew from his bingo experience that this was probably going to be very popular and that there were going to be a lot of orders. And he completely revolutionized the coin operating manufacturing business. He was the first of these guys to go and look at what Henry Ford was doing with automobiles and with the assembly line and apply that to the coin op industry. He created a very modern factory operation based on assembly line principles where there was no wasted space and no wasted movement in every machine and every person was stationed just so to manufacture these machines as efficiently as possible. It was the first assembly line in coin-operated amusements. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, I'm not a super-duper in-depth expert on this area as I am in video game history. So there might have been some small factory in some obscure part of the country that, that did it before he did. But he's generally credited with the first one to do this and to being the first person that could turn out these machines at an incredibly high volume. He had multiple shifts going. He had 30 employees, and he was able at the height to turn out 400 baffle ball machines a day, which in that period was stunning. That makes him able to outproduce anyone who wanted to do a clone. Why would I want to get a clone when baffle ball from the actual manufacturer is easily available? Well, almost easily available because they still couldn't keep up with demand. Between them, Gottlieb and Keeney received orders for 75,000 baffle ball machines. They were able to produce 50,000. Now, 50,000 was an astronomical figure back then. I mean, think about it. It was an astronomical figure decades later. When Space Invaders did 60,000 cabinets for Midway in the United States, the video game, that was considered an unbelievable amount of coin-operated machines. 50,000 was and is an incredible number in that space. Sales came to about $800,000. Yeah, that doesn't sound like much today, but remember, we are talking 1931 money, so we're going to pull out our friend the inflation calculator. <laughs> I was doing the same thing. As we always do. So if in 1931 I had $800,000, what would that be today? That's 14 million, over 14 million in sales. Just shy of 14 and a half million. Exactly. In a matter of months. I mean, we're talking about a production that was like six months or something like that. I mean, it's not like they were making it forever. In the middle of the Depression, making money like that, I mean, it's unbelievable. Baffle Ball was the game that kicked the pinball revolution into high gear. There were pinball machines before it, there were even popular pinball machines before it. But this was the first time they were being mass produced. They were appearing all over the country, and it was becoming a big, major product category and a big, major hit. We did our history of Bally. We talked about Baffle Ball because 
Ray Maloney, he was in the distribution business, the founder of Bally, and he was one of the customers for Baffle Ball. And when he couldn't get enough Baffle Balls, then just like uh, Gottlieb decided, you know, I'll make my own machine when Robin and Rest betrayed him, Maloney said, I'll make my own machine and, and then made the Bally Who pen table. We talked about that in our Bally episode, but that was the beginning of Bally. I mean, all of these companies kind of were launched in the wake of the success of Gottlieb. Gottlieb was kind of the big name in the business. Bally eclipsed them briefly because Ballyhoo uh, did even bigger business. But Gottlieb is kind of the one that really got this all rolling and really got the manufacturing modernized and really made this pinball industry start to work. He was also the one that made sure that it wasn't just a fad that came and went very quickly. That was a very real possibility. This was very similar to the Pong craze in 1972-1973, which we talked about. Baffle Ball is a success. The improved bingo machine is a success. Then at the coin show in early 1932, the show is just flooded with pinball machines. Dozens of companies are coming in, creating their own pin tables. Again, they don't call them pinball regularly quite yet, but we'll call them that just for ease of description. There are pinball tables everywhere, just like there were ball and paddle games everywhere in the wake of Pong. And as we know, that didn't go well for the ball and paddle market. In 1973, video games big, 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 and 74, crash, crash, crash. There was a good chance that the same thing would happen in pinball. David Gottlieb is really the real reason that it didn't happen, because he created a follow-up game in 1932 with a completely different design. He created a pin game that had a figure eight pattern instead of this kind of diamond pattern that was being imitated by all of the other pin games with individual holes kind of along this figure eight track. He named it after a local newspaper, one of the local newspapers at the time called the Chicago Examiner. This is back in the days when newspapers would put out multiple editions throughout the day to get the latest news out. The Examiner called its last edition of the day, the five-star final. Gottlieb took this game, this figure-eight pattern, and decorated the playfield with these big, colorful stars, and then named it the five-star final. The lore for many years is that he called it five-star final because he thought it was going to be his final pin machine, and then he was going to get out of the business because it's a fad. That's not true. The name actually goes back to this newspaper. But it is true that everyone thought that the pin thing was about to pass. And then Five Star Final was a massive hit. Not, I don't think, quite as massive as Baffle Ball, but still a massive hit. That's what the industry needed to sustain itself. And it's not like every game after that was a figure eight pattern. In fact, that figure eight pattern was very unusual. But the point was, it showed that you could make different pin games. You could continue to innovate and it would continue to be interesting. You weren't stuck in this one little format. And that was kind of the beginning of really getting pinball as a sustainable business. Even though Five Star Final doesn't get brought up nearly as often as Baffle Ball does, it's almost as important to the foundation of the pinball industry as Baffle Ball was. You can certainly see the innovation there with Five Star Final. You have two big circle areas, and then you have a star pattern, a five-point star In the middle of each, you have various holes in each of them. So I can certainly see how this is a innovation and a change that would certainly draw the attention of something that's more sophisticated. Okay, we've established how pinball games work. We've established that they can be a bit more complicated. 
Here, we're going to change the formula up a bit. We're going to have, instead of a diamond pattern, this double circle pattern. We're going to have some stars in here, more intricate painting done, more intricate complications that can have an appeal. It's sort of like how it is with pretty much any industry. You have to constantly be innovating and changing things up in a meaningful way instead of just rehashing what you already have done outside of certain staples needed of just living life. Any kind of entertainment, you have to constantly innovate. Mm -hmm. Throughout this period, Gottlieb is successful for three major reasons. And they're reasons that, as I said, continue to define the company going forward. First of all, they're coming out with innovative and good-looking product. Second of all, they're advertising it very well. He does very colorful uh, advertising flyers. He sends them out everywhere. He makes sure everybody knows these games are out there. And third, he's built this kind of distribution system. He's used his contacts all over the country to build an effective distribution system that allows him to get machines to, to large parts of the country, maybe more effectively than some of his smaller competitors. These are the three things that really define Gottlieb, not just in the 30s, but in the 40s, in the 50s, even in the 60s. This is kind of the defining feature of Gottlieb. Gottlieb is the company that sets the tone. They don't always have necessarily the biggest game on the market, but they are the company that is seen as the innovator and the company that's kind of always on the cutting edge, at least in pinball. It also becomes a family company, very much so during this period, because five years in, right when this is starting to take off, his brother Nate, his younger brother Nate Gottlieb, joins to be in charge of sales. A few years after that, his older brother Saul joins the company and kind of becomes their West Coast representative and also becomes involved in sales stuff. He's bringing the family on board, too. They're expanding. Just a few years before, he was having trouble keeping his 5,000-square-foot facility going. Well, within a few years of all of this success, he moves into an 18,000-square-foot factory on North Polina Street in Chicago. Finally, in 1940, he moves into a 38,000-square-foot factory on Costner Avenue, which remains the factory for the company for decades after that, just this uh, big new building. It's growing. It's profitable. We went into hyper detail there on the beginning because beginnings are like that, but we're going to kind of skip ahead a little bit now. We're not the pinball experts, so it's not like we're going to go through every release one by one and talk about why it was important. You know, they remained very successful through the 30s. They had competition from Bally and from Genco and from Chicago Coin and from others. But they were the number one company. By the end of the 1930s, Gottlieb was cemented as the number one pinball company. That is a role that they would uh, retain for like four decades. I mean, they never let go. Of course, the war interrupted things. We've talked about this before, but during the war, raw materials and manufacturing capacity were needed for the war effort, and most businesses that were not involved in the manufacture of war material were considered non-essential, which meant that they couldn't get the raw materials they needed to keep doing their business, and so had to basically turn to war-related manufacturing. Gottlieb was one of those companies that did that. You know, the, the pinball industry basically just stopped. The coin-operated amusement industry basically just stopped at the beginning of 1942. 
no new machines of any kind were being created. There were a few companies that were doing refurbishments where they would take old machines and just like redo a playfield and then re-release the old machine with a new playfield. But new games weren't being created because, you know, you need metal for the balls and you need the wood for the cabinets. And that was all essential stuff for the war effort. You couldn't make it. Gottlieb was a uh, war material manufacturer during the war. Like all of its competitors, this actually uh, was kind of helpful coming into the post-war period because they kind of expanded their factories for war work. They got more sophisticated equipment for manufacturing stuff for the war effort. And so they had a, a nice big modern factory kind of ready to go at the end of the war, though it was kind of a troubling period the end of the 1940s for the coin-operated amusement industry. On the plus side, because no machines had been made for like four years, everything on the market was obsolete, which meant that there was a demand for newer, better equipment. On the downside, because everything was obsolete, distributors and operators were faced with the daunting task of having to replace everything all at once, which is very expensive. So even though it's an opportunity, it's also a real problem. Plus, there had been a lot of kind of small-town arcades that had grown up around military camps and military bases. Now that these military camps were closing and everyone was returning home, a lot of those arcades went out of business because they didn't have custom anymore. So there was kind of this massive shift in the coin-op industry, and it looked like a period of opportunity, but it ended up being a, a period of problem. Then on top of that, you had the crackdown on pinball that already started in the 1930s, which we've talked about before, where they were linked with gambling, they were linked with organized crime, and there was a real effort to kind of eradicate the business, which was a very serious thing. Coming out of the war, there was the problem of how do you keep selling this stuff? How do you keep people interested? How do you get your machines into this marketplace where there's a demand for new equipment, but not necessarily the money to buy all the new equipment you need? And how do you deal with this problem of the crackdowns on pinball as a gambling device? This kind of led to two kind of very defining characteristics of, of Gottlieb in this period. First of all, David Gottlieb became the most ardent opponent of any kind of payout, period, in pinball. Now, he had not been this way in the 1930s. Just like his competitors, he experimented with payout machines in the 1930s. Let's be honest here. Bally came to dominate the pay pinball market. Even though Gottlieb was the overall pinball leader, that niche of the market was totally Bally's. If Gottlieb had been number one in that market instead of Bally, I doubt Gottlieb, David Gottlieb, would have been so adamantly opposed to payout-style games. It kind of helps when you're already behind in that field. It's easier to say, oh, that's terrible. You want to throw all the dirt you can on your biggest competitor. Exactly. And Ray Maloney and David Gottlieb were actually friends, and, and they remained friends for Ray Maloney's entire life because he died first. But, you know, business is still cutthroat and business is still business. So Gottlieb became the most vehement opponent of payouts and games, trying to carve out a niche for himself, very similar to what Nintendo did when there were the violence controversies, quite frankly, in the early 90s with the Senate hearing and everything, where Sega was portraying itself as no, 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 it's okay that we have this violence because, you know, teenagers play now, it's an older audience, and we're just catering to an older audience, whereas Nintendo was like, these are children's games, Sega knows they're children's games, and we are adamantly opposed to all of this violence and music and sex on TV. 
you know, that was kind of the Nintendo track, and, and Gottlieb's doing the same thing here in the late 40s and early 50s and, and beyond, even later into the 50s, and coming out against payout machines. He refused to do payout machines. He stuck with traditional amusements, basically exclusively to pinball and pool tables, because coin-operated pool tables started becoming popular in the 50s. But they didn't really get into anything else. I mean, they didn't get into slot machines, they didn't get into bingo machines, but they didn't even get into, like, novelty amusements, like shooting games, target shooting games, or kitty rides, or shuffle alleys, or any of these other things. They basically just stuck with pure pinball and some pool. He actually split the industry. There was a Manufacturers Association that kind of ran the industry. You know, we've talked before about the MOA show and the AMOA show in regards to the introduction of the early arcade video games like Pong. That was an operators association, the Music Operators of America. Before they existed, there had been a manufacturers organization that kind of ran the trade shows and everything. But it split apart because of this feud between Gottlieb and Bally. Gottlieb became very influential in the association. You know, he became president. He said the association will no longer accept any manufacturers that produce payout games, which is a direct shot across the bow to Bally, which is big in slots and big in bingo, bingo payout machines, pinball machines. Certainly looks good to regulators who go, hey, you're doing gambling machines. And you go, no, I'm not. I am firmly against doing this horrible, horrible gambling. It's full of that alcohol and prohibition stuff. Don't want that. Right. Ray Maloney, then, of course, you know, he's not going to stop making machines, and he's just as big a player as Gottlieb is, so he basically says, fine, I'll found my own manufacturer's association with bingos and slot machines. And payouts. <laughs> exactly. So it ends up splitting the industry, and in the end, both organizations fail, and that's the end of the manufacturers' associations until the uh, AAMA is founded many, many years later <laughs> in 1980 to combat gray market imports and piracy of video games. That's why it becomes the Music Operators Association rather than a manufacturers' association that becomes the leader that has all the trade shows and, and all of that stuff. It goes right back to this split between Gottlieb and Maloney. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is, is he kind of realizes, I think, that they need to figure out a way to put some skill into these games. I don't know that there was a mandate from the top of the company to do that, but I think there was kind of an understanding, had to be an understanding at least, that skill was going to need to get in here. Something was going to need to change. It couldn't be just spring-loaded plunger, ball goes up, ball falls through a nest of pins, and sometimes other obstacles. I mean, there are bumpers by now, too. It's not just pins anymore. The bumper's been invented. But it can't just be a ball bouncing around randomly and basically all luck on what happens. If, if we're really going to break away from the gambling idea, we have to have some skill in there. The answer to that actually came from their principal designer at this time by the name of uh, Harry Mabs. He's considered one of the most brilliant designers, I think, in pinball history. Not much is known about him. I know he's of uh, French descent, but not much is really known about his life or anything. First at Gottlieb and then later at Williams, he was one of the main people that pushed pinball innovation forward between the 40s and the early 60s when he, uh, and before he retired in 1962. The way the story goes... Again, you know, some of these stories could be apocryphal because just uh, the nature of how this information was preserved lends itself to that. 
But the story goes that he was working on his latest game and he was fiddling around with hop bumpers, which were kind of brand new at the time, which is a bumper that when the ball hits it, it's not just that the ball bounces off of it, but it's actually electromechanical and there's like a coiled spring. And when the ball hits it, the outer ring of the bumper decompresses and pops out and forcibly kicks the ball in another direction. You know, it's it's more exciting playfield action. He's got this playfield with pop bumpers and he's deep in the wiring of the thing. And he's, you know, kind of trying to work in this rat's nest of wires and he ends up completing a circuit by connecting two of these wires together just uh, accidentally, which causes the pop bumper to go off all on its own because of the completed circuit. He realizes, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. And then he thought about the flippers, the kind of bats used in electromechanical baseball games, which, you know, in a lot of ways have similarities to pinball in the sense that there's a ball launched and then the ball comes down and you're trying to get it in a hole, but you're, you know, using a paddle thing to serve as a bat, you know, to try to bat it into the right part of the table. And he thinks about those and he's like, what if I took some of those flipper bats and put them on the play field? When the player presses a button, it completes a circuit that causes those flipper bats to move and create action on the playfield. That is the, like I said, for all I know, it's semi-legendary or apocryphal, but that's the story of record, so at least for now I'm sticking to it. That's how the pinball flipper was created. Until that point, it really was a game of chance. Once you have a flipper, I can control where that ball goes. I have an influence, I have skill, I have agency. Yes, and, and it doesn't get there all the way right away. The first flipper machine created by uh, Harry Mabs with help from his assistant Wayne Nayans, who is still alive uh, in his early hundreds today, uh, has given a lot of interviews even in the past few years. Mabs and his uh, technician assistant Wayne Nayans craft this play field where they have three sets of flippers down the side of the playfield, so they face outward. They don't face in towards the middle of the table, and it's not just two at the bottom, it's three sets. They're not very powerful because of the way the current is being used. They're not very powerful. They're pretty weak, so you can press the button and hit the flippers and the ball will, will bat a little bit, but not in the same way as a flipper shot even a few years later, let alone the kind of pinball machines that we played, Jeffrey, in the 80s and 90s. It's only a small amount of control, and it's only in a very small part of the playfield because they're, they're facing outwards along the side. But it's the start of the idea that, as you say, that the player has agency in the way this works. And Gottlieb loves this idea right away. And, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not positive about this. It's not like I have a, a quote from her or anything, but I'm sure, you know, it's weighing heavily on his mind. Like, how do we get away from the gambling stigma? And there it is. I mean, it's immediately obvious because even their flyers, they advertise it as a game of skill. I mean, they understand that this is the answer. He originally wanted to call it Flipper, just like Bally called the machine where they introduced bumpers. And, and yes, for you pinball fans, I know that wasn't quite the first bumper. We're not getting into that here. But the game that popularized the bumper, Bally just called Bumper, because that's how significant the introduction of bumpers was. Just game-changing. Gottlieb wanted to call this Flipper. But it turns out that there had been a game called Flipper back in, like, 1932. And so, you know, there was a copyright or a trademark or whatever, and he couldn't use that. So they decided to go with a fairy tale nursery rhyme theme and, and called it Humpty Dumpty. So that was the first Flipper game. There had been prototypical pinball games before that had some form of 
being able to control the ball. There weren't many of them, but there were a few. There had been flippers before on, like, baseball games, a single flipper to serve as a bat. But this was really the beginning of flipper pinball as we know it, and it changed the industry overnight. Just like I often talk about computer games being before Doom and after Doom. I mean, pinball really is before flipper and after flipper. Because even today, I mean, not so many pinball machines get made today, but the core gameplay of pinball, even though they gussy it up with different targets and different sights and sounds and graphics and playfield obstacles and all of this, the basic, basic, basic element of pinball is still you launch a ball onto the field, it does its thing, and then you hit it with the flipper to keep your play going. Very, very true. I'm looking at a few images of Humpty Dumpty right now. It looks like a modern cabinet. We have our play field. You have that scoreboard that is perpendicular at the end of it. You have flippers. You have bumpers. You have all the painting on there. It looks like a very early one. Mm-hmm. I will grant you that. It's all made out of wood. It's very obviously made out of wood that's stained. And you have this glass backdrop to it. But it has all of those elements I would come to expect from pinball. I see that I got my coin inserter there. I got my plunger to launch the ball. I got my six flippers that I can flip. Yeah, I can see how this is very much night and day between what you had before with five star to now of I got flippers, I got bumpers, I got pinball. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As I said, it started with the flippers turned out multiple sets. Uh, It was actually Jinko that first went to a single set of flippers at the bottom shortly after, and they were copying Humpty Dumpty. I mean, they saw the flipper idea in Humpty Dumpty, and they did their own version of it. They put the flippers at the bottom, and they made the flippers stronger so they could bat the ball further up. But they were still facing out at that time. It wasn't until 1950 that finally you got the traditional flippers facing inward (laughs) that we're much more used to today. Once again, it was Gottlieb that, as as far as I know, pioneered that. Uh, They did a game in January 1950 called Just 21. That was the first time that the flippers faced inward instead of outward. It was still kind of an odd placement compared to the games today. I mean, I would say that probably, and again, I'm not a huge pinball historian, so I could be missing something, but... It feels like uh, the game Knockout, which was done in December of 1950, is when you finally get what you would kind of consider the traditional flipper pattern, because just 21 turned them inward, but they were still off to the side. They weren't really protecting the center of the playfield so much. Knockout has them at the traditional angle that we think of today. Other than the fact that Jinko went to the single set of flippers first, Gottlieb really does see, okay, this is the thing. This is how we separate ourselves from the payout machines. This is now a game of skill. Just incredibly, incredibly important. Like I said, you know, from the very first flyer, the flyer for Humpty Dumpty, it says, there is something new under the sun. Get this game of skill and timing. All caps on both of those words. Skill, all caps. Timing, all caps. On location, now. Skill and timing. They know that this is the answer to the problem. 
I'm looking at that same advertisement, a game of skill and timing, player controls, flipper bumpers. Mm-hmm. You have Humpty Dumpty there. Then you have one of the second lines that's just almost as big letters, flipper bumpers. Yep. And even smaller letter further down, plus high score, sequence bonus, kicker's pockets. Ooh, fancy. Yep. It was a smash. Games in the early years, you know, they would sell tens of thousands of units because it was all new and and all the locations were getting it. Pinball after the war, until the 70s and the solid state revolution, which we've talked about before, pinball after the war, most machines sold 1,000 units, 1,500 units. That's what you sold. You didn't do the big numbers. Humpty Dumpty sold over 6,500 units. Which pales in comparison to the machines of the early Depression, but that made it one of the top-selling pinball machines between the 1940s and the 1970s. It was a big deal. It changed the industry. The 1950s and the 1960s were the period when Gottlieb was kind of at its height. During this period, the, the family nature of the company expanded again. David Gottlieb remained the president throughout. Nate Gottlieb, his brother, remained in charge of sales, but now the next generation was coming in as well. Alvin Gottlieb, David's son, joined the firm in 1947 to be in charge of advertising. Then in 1952, his son-in-law, Judd Weinberg, joined the company. Weinberg's family was also a family that was very entrepreneurial and very into business. Judd, of course, was Jewish as well, and his father, Jack, just like David's father, was in the clothing business. He started a company in Chicago called Oxford Clothes that created tailored menswear, formal stuff, in 1916. Judd attended Northwestern, a very fine school, and then shortly after graduation, he met Dave Gottlieb's daughter, Marjorie, who was also a Northwestern student, but younger. They didn't actually meet until after he graduated. It was one of these, you know, love at first sight stories that you hear from back then. They had their first date, and then nine days later, he proposed to her. They were married in 1950. At the time, he was still working in the menswear business, but he wanted to be in sales. He really wanted to be a salesman, and that was not the job he had at his father's business. He was working in the shop, managing the shop. And so in 1952, he decided to leave his father's business for his father-in-law's business, and uh, he joined Gottlieb as well. He became principally responsible for international sales. International sales is what really propelled pinball in a big way in this time period, in the 50s and especially in the 60s. As Europe rebuilt and as the kind of Western world realigned in this, uh, you know, with the NATO alliance and, and these other alliances uh, against the Eastern Bloc, there was a real appreciation and a real spread of American culture throughout Western Europe, particularly in Britain and in Germany, less so in France, I think. So Judd Weinberg took charge of getting that business going and getting Gottlieb machines over there, and they particularly had success in Britain, so much so that in 1958 they even opened a plant in Ireland so that they could supply the British market with locally made games that wouldn't have all the high import taxes of what was coming in in the United States. You had Papa Dave as president, Brother Nate, head of sales, Son-in-law, Judd, head of international sales. Son, Alvin, head of marketing and advertising and promotion. A real family effort going on here. 
during this period, Gottlieb kind of did a, a really savvy thing again, because he was always a very savvy businessman. You know, everyone knew that the industry just wasn't what it was before World War II. You weren't going to sell necessarily as much. It wasn't going to be the big unit numbers. Suburbia was changing the landscape. People were moving out to the suburbs, and the arcades just didn't get the same traffic that they used to, and the new venues out in the suburbs, places like skating rinks and movie theaters and bowling alleys and shopping centers, didn't necessarily want pinball and some of these other old-line games. What Gottlieb decided to do is to create a lot of games a year. Like, instead of trying to have a few big hits— what he wanted to do was constantly flood the market with new products. In the 50s, Gottlieb would release like 15 to 20 tables a year, pinball machines. Each one would have a really low run. You know, By this time, pinball cabinets are bigger, but they're wooden cabinets. To make his machines look a little classier, he would put these wooden rails and these wooden frames around the back glass that just made them look very nice. They had a really talented artist named Roy Parker who would do these really colorful play fields and really colorful back glasses. They had really talented designers in Harry Mabs first before he left for Williams, and then Wayne Nayans, who had been his assistant and then took over as the principal designer after that, that were really good at making these clever little tables. They gained a reputation for having the best-looking and the best-playing tables in the business, even though the market was smaller, the companies that were in the market were very interested in their product, and he created artificial shortages. He had a phrase that he used, that, that he came up with, to kind of describe the, the trade, what he was doing at this time. What that was is gauged product and controlled distribution. So basically, he tried to create demand through scarcity. He said that we have the best product in the field. We have the best designers in the field. We very carefully test our product before we put it out. This is the best stuff out there, gauged product. And then we're only going to put a few hundred machines on the market. So you need to get in early to get one of our machines. But once you get one of our machines, you know that the guy down the street isn't going to have the same machine because you got in on this and he didn't. Controlled distribution. He called it protecting your investment. That's how he sold this to distributors and to operators. Get in on this game early. Don't worry about the fact that it hasn't been location tested. Don't worry about the fact that nobody knows how, whether the public's going to like it or not. It's a Gottlieb product. Look at the quality. You know it's quality. Get in now. If you wait, you won't have it. You'll be in trouble. And the guy that came in early is going to be the one that makes the money. Gauged product and controlled distribution to protect your investment. The trade ate it up, so it, it guaranteed that all of their games would sell out their production runs, even though the production runs were low, even though we were talking about a few hundred or maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred at the most. It guaranteed that every game would sell out. Here's the thing. It served as a form of market testing, too. Essentially, every product was a test product. Let's say one of the games was actually more popular than the others and was the game that was the hot product. Well, they still only produced their limited production run of that game. But what they would do is a few months later, they would release the exact same game in terms of the game design, just with different art on the playfield, a different name, but otherwise the same game. So 
operators knew that if they missed out on the game that happened to be the big game this time around, all they had to do was wait a few months, and then they would be able to get that game just with a different name. So that would then spur orders of the later game. It was a virtuous cycle that fed on itself and made sure that Gottlieb remained the number one pinball company in the 1950s and the 1960s, even though none of their individual games was any kind of necessarily big hit. Kind of impressive that the cycle actually got broken, because that's a pretty vicious cycle to have going on. I guess the only way for it to really be broken is that the popularity of pinball just fell so much that even the small runs wasn't sustainable. Well, it was actually just the opposite, (laughs) right? This is getting a little ahead of the story, and we'll go into this in more detail later, but in the mid-1970s, it got to the point that pinball became suddenly really huge and became big in youth culture and became big in shopping mall arcades, and then you were seeing runs of tens of thousands of units of pinball machines. It's really that pinball became more successful (laughs) that kind of stopped this from working. When pinball was a relatively small market, but still sustainable market, this kind of Gottlieb system worked. It didn't work when it became mass market, because then people did just want the latest and greatest, the biggest, the best, the most technological, and Gottlieb became a pretty conservative company overall. I mean, it was still run by David Gottlieb, who'd been running it since 1927. Even into the 60s, he was still the one running it. It was old school. It was against a lot of newfangled stuff. There were a few innovations, but later on, those innovations kind of dried up. That's kind of the story we'll look at when we pick it up next time. We'll look at how they continued to be an innovative company in the 50s. We kind of talked about the distribution, but we'll also we'll talk about some of the tables. We'll talk about how they continued to expand into the 60s and kind of kept a pace with things, but then how they kind of started to decline so that even before video was on the scene, they were overthrown by their competitors and were kind of starting their road to eventual collapse. That'll all be for the next episode, and who knows, maybe even the next episode after that, though I I think we can wrap it up uh, realistically as a two-parter on They Create Worlds. So I guess we get to learn more about Gottlieb and how they went from pinball into that thing that we actually know about, video games. (laughs) But this certainly gives a lot of context as to what has actually brought the company to the point where they look at video games, where they say, you know, I need to transition into this in order to survive. It's certainly something that shows how much of a family company this is, how much they seem to really be on top of just doing great marketing, great design, great innovations, great this and that. It kind of highlights how the transition into video is bittersweet and tragic in that it eventually destroys a company that survived the Great Depression survived a world war survived a downturn where they were able to come up with a strategy to survive for a period of about 20 years it's really sad to see something like that fail absolutely now i mean you know it was the changes in the market that killed them i mean it wasn't the transition they transitioned to video because if they hadn't transitioned to video they would have been killed by the complete collapse of pinball during the video game craze in the early 80s. It was kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Definitely. 
we'll explore uh, how they continued to push the game forward in the 50s and early 60s, then entered a bit of a decline, and then got caught up, of course, in the whole solid-state craze and in the video craze and started falling behind and and eventually uh, falling apart. All right. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds Bigger, Louder, and More Gottlieb. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please give us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Getting the word out helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Well, I'll hit back. I'm not going to know that. I'm not going to know that. I'm not going to know that.